This is the Relevant Life Church podcast, where we are about connecting with God, relating to people, and reaching our world. Tune in as our church goes through this week's teaching in God's Word. Well, good morning, good morning. How many people are excited to be in God's house today? Raise your hand. Even if you're just a little excited, you still can raise your hand. I believe God's here and he's moving. Um, I'm excited that you're here. A um, couple things really quick this morning. Um, thanks for making church a priority. I say that often, but I know that as the fall season picks back up, um, a lot of things start vying for our attention, right? If you have a student in school, that definitely causes a lot of, a lot of more uh, work for you on your part. I know jobs, all sorts of different things, commitments come up. So thanks for making today a priority. I believe that it is worth it. And uh, it may not pay off in the ways you think it will, but I believe you're making the right steps. I believe that God sees this effort that you're making. So anyway, um, how many people are, are happy football season's back? Anybody? All right, that's a good amount. I told uh, Rick this morning, the guy who played the drums today, he slayed it, right? Give it up for Rick. Um, I told him this morning, I was like, over the last couple like years, I'm a basketball guy, so I don't watch a lot of football, but over the last couple years, I've slowly prog- like, pro- progressed, progress, 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 progress. I know how to speak. It's fine. Okay. It's first service, um, progressed. And uh, I, I think the first like t- couple years ago, I started watching just some of the playoff games. Last year, I watched a lot of the playoff games and a little bit of regular season. And this year, I've already watched some regular season. So I'm progressing more and more. I don't have a team selected. I'll root for the Seahawks just because they're in the Northwest. But I don't know. Uh, if you want to try to bid your team on me so that I I support them. Go for it because I'm open, open ears. Right now, Jesse's trying to turn me into a Chargers fan. So, <laughs> and we just hate the Steelers, right, Brittany? I was, I was Go Packers, right, David? That's good. <laughs> Uh, I love you guys. Anyway, if you're new with us this morning, I encourage you to fill out a connection card. We said in our video, but I keep reminding you um, to do that. There's so many faces that I have not seen in a while or just haven't connected with before, and so we want you to be a part of this community, so fill out that connection card. As well as before we jump in, um, Pastor Kevin and Pastor Sasser are gone. If you did not notice, right now they are in the woods trying to slay a beast. They're trying to come home with some meat for their family, so you can pray for them that they, they successfully do that. PK will be back next week. They both will be, but PK will bring, be bringing the word next week. Um, and then last but not least, um, I say this every once in a while because I think it's super important. A lot of times we don't take notes on what is being preached, and so we end up forgetting what was preached on. Like by Wednesday it comes, like, wait, what did they say again? I don't remember. Like, how many people remember what was preached three weeks ago? All right, very, very few. Okay, yeah, so the, my encouragement is uh, to take notes, and we made it super easy for you. So if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can download that on Android, which is of the devil, or smart, or on Apple. Um, I guess we have a lot of Android users because no one thought that was funny. They're like, oh, you're of the devil. Um, anyway, um, but you can download that app, and under there you can go into events, and you can find um, we have all our sermon notes stored on there. So go on. You can save them. You don't have to take the notes, but you can reference back to them later. So we made it super easy. Sound good? Sound good? Come, sound good? Half y'all are just staring at me, but it's fine. Okay, anyway, we're, we're stepping into week seven of a collection of talks we've entitled Parables. Hold up seven fingers this morning and say week seven. Week seven, week seven of, of our parable series. And this is actually the second to last week of our, of our series. PK will be closing up next week. And I hope that it's been an amazing journey for you thus far. I feel like God has really um, been speaking to me throughout it. I'm opening my eyes. I think things like the parables sometimes, if you've been in church for a while, they can become very... Um, 
I don't know, just you, you don't get anything new out of them, right? You know them, you, you neglect them, you kind of forget about them, but we've, we've seen a lot of amazing things throughout these parables. And so if you haven't been with us, this word parables means a simple story used to illustrate a deep and profound spiritual lesson. A simple story used to illustrate a deep and profound spiritual lesson. And what we've come to find out over the co- course of the series is that when it comes to the person of Jesus, he tended to use parables a lot to teach the principles of his kingdom. If you spend any time in the first three eyewitness account of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll see parables littered throughout them. Jesus would often tell stories chock full of these characters and these situations in order to, we found out the first week for two reasons, but really in order to be able to communicate the principles of his kingdom, what he was bringing to this earth so we could grasp it in, in understandable ways. And so we've challenged our each challenge ourselves each week to look into this. And so our series statement is that Jesus could have used any avenue to communicate the truths of his kingdom, but he often chose parables. And our desire has been to understand what his parables meant and to align the action and trajectory of our lives with their meanings and truths. And I was challenged this week when reading over the statement because the first week I preached in this series, I mentioned that Jesus doesn't want us to just hear these stories and go, oh, cool story, bro. He wants to see life change. But what I want to mention there is this is not necessarily a life change that you force upon yourself. It's a life change that you hear the good word that's God speaking and you let it go down into your heart and in turn that changes your life. And that can be kind of confusing, but this is not like, oh, you hear about the good Samaritan, you need to go love your neighbor more. No, first you need to get before God and say, break my heart for those around me. He's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to change you from the inside out. And so that's, that's been a challenge we've had with the series. And so if you've been with us, hopefully that's begun to happen. If not, I would encourage you to go check out the previous messages on podcasts, YouTube, Vimeo, um, Facebook. We have them all on there. Um, and yeah, so anyway, with that being said, we're going to jump into today's message. Who's ready for it? We're talking about the parable of the weeds. Parable of the weeds. Do I have any people that like to weed in this place? All right, look at Julie Morgan in the back and say, we knew something was different about you. There's something odd about you. Yeah, if you like weeding, we love you, Julie, but... I don't know. God made you special for specific reasons because I hate weeding. Okay. I hate gardens. I like them to look nice. I hate putting any effort in. Anybody with me? Okay. Okay. Anyway, I'm, I'm excited to unpack this text. Um, before we jump into the 15 verses that encapsulate the parable of the weeds, I want to mention just a few things. First of all, it's found in Matthew chapter 13. And I say that because we've already looked at Matthew chapter 13 in this um, in this series so far, Pastor Ali opened up the first week of the series with the parable of the sower, which begins Matthew 13. But beyond that, Matthew 13 actually has a total of seven parables in it, okay? Seven parables. So it's kind of just like consecutively Jesus rattling off parables. And so after the parable of the sower, which we learn is like four different soils, right? The path, the rocky soil, the thorns, and the good soil. And you want, you want the seed, God's word to go in your heart and, and create a, and create a um, harvest in you. After that parable, Jesus goes in the parable of the weeds. And the reason I'm telling you this is because when he goes into this parable, he then begins a list of six consecutive parables, all with the the introduction of the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And I'm telling you that because within that statement, Jesus is highlighting the purpose for why he's about to share these parables. He was sharing with his audience an overview statement for them to know the motive and reason for the story he was about to use to describe something. And I realized so far in this, um, in this series, we've actually mentioned and talked about the kingdom of heaven or otherwise known as the kingdom of God a couple different times, but that doesn't mean we all understand it. See, the phrase, the phrase kingdom of heaven is what I like to call Christianese. Does anyone know what Christianese is? Christianese is typically like that terminology and jargon that Christians use that like everyone's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so I want to make sure before, because this whole parable again is about God's kingdom, I want to make sure everyone understands what his kingdom is. 
So when Jesus says God's kingdom, what does he mean? I think there's two common misconceptions. For most, they might hear of, of this idea of kingdom and think of some medieval location on a map, right? We, we picture castles and dragons and king, like, right? This is like what a lot of people would hear kingdom and go, oh, like we're talking about medieval times. But that's not what Jesus was describing. He's not talking about like Wakanda. That's like this hidden invisibility kingdom somewhere in our world today. We have to go find it. Like that's not what he's dialoguing, okay? The other misconception I think people may have when they hear kingdom of heavens, they may think Jesus is talking about heaven. So whatever you picture as he eternity, this, this place where good people go at, in the afterlife, like that's what you may hear when you hear kingdom of heaven. That's not what Jesus is talking about either. He's not talking about this ethereal place where like chubby babies are playing harps and like we're going to go be with them. Like that's not what he's talking about. If you guys didn't catch that reference, there's like a lot of paintings of heaven with chubby babies playing harps. It's fine. <laughs> Tough crowd. I don't believe that's what heaven's like, but clearly someone, I don't know, they were on some drugs, weed. I don't know because we're talking about weed. I have no idea. And they, they decided to paint heaven and it was chubby, ba- chubby babies with, with harps. And if I'm wrong when we get there, you can all tell me I was wrong. But anyway, side note. Uh, so what is the kingdom of heaven? I like how John Piper describes the kingdom this way. He says, I think the most important thing I could say about the kingdom of God is that, or about the kingdom of God that would help people make sense out of all of the uses is that the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's reign. R-E-I-G-N, not realm or people. The kingdom creates a realm, so a space or place, and the kingdom creates a people, but the kingdom of God is not synonymous with or equivalent to its realm or people. So in other words, the kingdom of God or of heaven is not a physical location or group of people. And I know that still doesn't make it super clear, but I just want you to understand that part. Simply speaking, the kingdom of heaven is the sovereign reign and rule of God on this earth and in, in and through our hearts and lives. It's not a physical location. It can manifest itself physically, but it's not. And I know some of you are already like zoning out. But like what I want you to understand is like when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're stepping into his kingdom. And what happens is the kingdom's residing in your heart because the kingdom speaks of a ruler, a king. And when you make Jesus king of your life, you are now stepping into his kingdom, okay? And Jesus says it this way, Luke 17, he says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. You can't physically see it. Nor will people say here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is in your midst, meaning it's already here. I'm the king. I'm here. He was meaning it's here, it's presence, it's active. It's only in the hearts of those, though, who follow me and call me Lord and Savior. And so I take all that to explain again, for, take all that time to explain for two reasons. It's, it's hard to grasp. I remember in college, like I think the first class I took in ministry college was about the kingdom of God. I was like, what are we talking about? Like, I'm like, I'm so confused, okay? And the second reason, again, is because this whole parable, the reason Jesus gives this parable and the five that follow is he was trying to teach people that had just been introduced to him what it meant to be a part of his kingdom. So you think it's hard to grasp now. Try like imagine seeing Jesus and be like, who is this guy? Like, why, what kingdom is he speaking of? He's trying to describe and picture what it is. And this was an important task because a lot of scholars assume now that when Jesus came, a lot of Jews actually believed Jesus was some military figure that was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and reestablish like the nation of Israel, which we know was far from the truth. God had way bigger perspective than that. And so, um, but he's coming and he's going like these people do not understand. So he's trying to explain. Okay. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles or on your phone, can't move my iPad um, or on the screen, we're going to read Matthew chapter 13 this morning, verses 24 through 30. And then we're going to skip ahead and read a few more. It says, Jesus told them another parable. Again, remember this is in the middle of a bunch of parables. He says the kingdom of heaven. So this place we just talked about is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, this man's enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. 
The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? He replied, An enemy did this. And then the servants asked, Do you want us to go and pull the weeds up? He said, No, because while you're pulling the weeds up, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters first, collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And if you're on version or you have your physical Bible, you'll notice I'm going to skip these verses. He goes into another parable, and what happens is a closed-door conversation where the disciples come and ask Jesus, what did you mean by this parable? So verse 36, it says, Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds the field. And can we just be thankful the disciples asked Jesus to explain? Because like, I got a rough idea of that from reading this text, but like when Jesus explains what we're about to read, it's so much more helpful. And so, and I also think that speaks to God's not afraid of your hard questions. And so like a big motto I've had in youth group for years now is don't be afraid to ask hard questions. Because I think if you don't ask hard questions, your faith is weak and then you actually end up falling apart. So ask hard questions. I love the disciples like, Jesus, we have no idea what you just said. Please explain it to us. And he says, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. It's me, because he used son of man as another label for himself. The son of man is the one who sowed the good seed in the field. The field is the world. So the world that we're living right now, like nothing's changed. This is, the, this is the reality we live in. Jesus has sown good seed into the world we live in. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. Again, those who have submitted their heart and life to me. The weeds are the people of the evil one. Some translations knock out that word one and just say the, the people of evil. And the enemy who sows them is the devil, right? God's adversary is Satan. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. He's talking about eschatology, right? The, the end of life, when what's happening in the afterlife. So when all of us die and Jesus comes back, this is what he's describing. He says, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The title of my message this morning is, Good and Evil Coexist, dot, 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 for now. Good and Evil Coexist, dot, 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 for now. Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you for this time. God, you know how much I have poured into this message, God, and trying to figure out how to describe the power of what's in it to these people. And so I just pray every heart and mind would be open. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would direct my words, God, that come out of my mouth. And I just pray, God, this is powerful. This, when we understand this, this is a powerful, powerful, powerful principle that helps us live in your kingdom right now while living in a world where evil is all around. And so we just thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. This week, as I was reflecting and preparing on this message, the thought hit me that um, for every single one of us, there's a, there comes a time in our life by experience that we realize there's also evil on top of the good that's in this world. By experience, right? There, there, there comes a moment where we come face to face with this understanding that although there's good around us, evil exists as well. And for some of us, this realization happens all at once because like of something horrible that happened to us or something horrible that happened to someone we know. And so we realize there's evil in this world. For other of us, others of us, this realization happened over time. Right? There are little observations we made, like little, little, little um, things that we noticed that went, wow, there's, like, there's something at work here that's not good. For some of us, this happened early on in childhood because of something someone did to you, something horrible you went through. For others of us, this happened on later in life. Like we noticed things, but finally like we came to this revelation. And I'm not like putting an age on this, but you guys all know what I'm speaking about this morning. We all come to this revelation. This word evil, so we're all on the same page, means something profoundly immoral. Something profoundly immoral. In, in, in other words, evil speaks of something so 
off, something so wrong, something extremely wrong, something that um, goes against the, the things we, the standards we deem as right. And I know that in our day and age, when it comes to morals, aka what is right and wrong, there's a lot of differing opinions. But for the most part, I think people can agree on what truly is evil. We may struggle agreeing on the certain subjects regarding morality, but for the vast majority of really bad stuff, right, the really bad stuff, we can go, no, that's evil. For example, I, I hope that we can look at mass shootings and go, no, there's, there's evil. I hope that we can look at uh, sex, sexual immorality and sex trafficking, and, uh, sex trafficking, child molestation, all those different things and go, there's evil involved in this. I hope that we can all look at what certain beliefs lead certain people to do to other people and go, there's evil involved in that. And with us just being one week after the 21st anniversary of 9-11, I realize looking back now as a five-year-old beginning kindergarten when that took place, my understanding of what evil was began to be formed. As a kid in a good home, in a good school, in a good church, with good parents, good friends, good family, I came into contact with, with evil. My five-year-old mind began to grasp the details of how a group of hijackers killed close to 3,000 people and injured near, nearly 6,000 people on this one single event. And my eyes became open to evil. Allie and I this summer were in New York, and one of the priorities I wanted, um, I prioritized was, was being able to go to the 9-11 memorial. And we didn't get to walk through the actual memorial, but we went and stood um, where the fountains now are, where the Twin Towers stood. And I wouldn't say I necessarily felt evil in that moment, but I felt the, the, the repercussions and consequences of what took place that day. I, I imagine the people around me in that moment going, man, on that day, people were rushing to the aid of people like, that are trapped in this building. People were jumping out of the building trying to save themselves. And I felt there's evil. And we all know what I'm talking about. And this causes a bunch of different responses in each one of us. Some of us it makes us skeptical and guarded of everything and everyone. For others, it makes us angry and hate-filled. For others, it causes confusion and hopelessness. And these responses are not secluded to just people that are not of Jesus. Jesus followers feel these things too. See, as a Jesus follower, we have to understand that we serve a God that is good and that will work things out, but that doesn't necessarily relieve the tension we oftentimes feel in regards to evil surrounding us. I find myself often puzzled and confused by the evil that exists around me. I trust God, but that doesn't stop me from asking God, why does evil exist? Why haven't you done something about it? And I'm not the first Christian to battle with this que questions like these. For generations, Christians have wrestled with the presence of evil and understanding why it's allowed in this world. But what's amazing about Matthew 13 is that I feel like as Jesus delivers the parable of the weeds, he actually ends up addressing some of these tensions we wrestle with. See, as I dove into studying this parable, I saw many interpretations and applications of what people think it means. But I ultimately believe the reason Jesus gave this parable was, I already told you, he wanted to show the kingdom of heaven, what it was like for them and what it's like for us right now. And, what, and as he does that, and as he communicates what it's like, I actually feel like he gives us some really interesting ideas in regards to why evil and good are, are coexistent right now in this life. And so I want to address three of these tensions this morning. So number one, this morning, I feel like Jesus touches on, if God's kingdom has come, why does evil exist? If God's kingdom has come, why does evil exist? And now talking about the subject, I realize the topic of evil is a very complex and diverse subject. It's something that has been discussed and defined for thousands of years by, by thousands of people, right? It's something that a lot of people have mold over in their mind. So with that being said, there's no way I have all the answers. And even if I did, I would not be able to communicate them at this point. But what I want to do is I want to look at what Jesus communicates. I want to show you what Jesus tells us. 
But before we do that, I think we need to at least come to a, an agreement and understanding what God labels as evil. Not what man labels as evil, what God labels as evil. So I want to define it. I already defined it, right? Profoundly immoral, right? Something profoundly wrong. But I want to I look at what God labels as evil. And like I mentioned earlier, the concept of right and wrong and having a set of moral standards in this world today is an ever-changing thing, right? People get disagreements about this all the time. Morals have become whatever an individual wants them to be or whatever they feel they should be. And this causes quite the divide among people, but as believers, we should recognize that God has a definition of evil. So what is it? Simply put, evil in God's eyes is us taking on the right to define what is good and bad for ourselves and in turn refusing him and his design. I'm going to say that again. Evil in God's eyes is us taking on the right to define for ourselves what is right and wrong and in turn refusing him and his design. In other words, it's us disobeying and, and, and disassociating with what he created this life to look like. And all the parents in the room understand this definition because one of your jobs as a parent is to teach your child what is wrong and right in, li in this life, right? Like how life functions. And unfortunately, in doing that, you have a front row seat to see that human beings are really great at ignoring what is right and wrong and figuring out on their own what they want to do. Am I right? All the parents are like, Amen. And throughout the Bible, there are countless examples to highlight this definition of evil. But one I came across a couple weeks ago is found in the book of Deuteronomy. And I like to describe um, the book of Deuteronomy as Moses' last words. See, Moses was a leader on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. He was his human representative to this nation for decades. And he, in Deuteronomy, ends up writing this book of final words because he knows he's about to die. He's not going to be able to go any further with them in this journey. And so God tells Moses, like, you need to tell the Israelites all these different things. And in that process, he starts talking about, if someone comes to you at some point and starts saying they're a representative of me, and in them saying that, they start going, we should worship other gods, not God, then you need to, Deuteronomy 13, 5, that prophet or dreamer tried to turn you away from the Lord your God, what he commanded you to follow, you must purge that evil from among you. So what did, what, did, what did Moses just label evil as? Something that turns us away from God. And so what comes to evil in this world, on the surface, it may not seem like a mass shooting has to do much with God. It may not seem like sex trafficking or all these other horrible, horrific things that we experience have to do much with God. But the root of them comes down to we have disobeyed the initial intent we should never be hating people in the first place, so why are we shooting them? Like there's these things that God created into the very fiber of this life. And so evil comes down to us ignoring that initial creation. I know I'm really theological today. Your faces are like, what's happening? I felt pressure all week. I'm like, Trenton, like, just explain this the way you can, bro. <clears throat> so now that we've covered that, why is it that even though God's kingdom has come, it's been ushered in, why is it that evil still exists? If God doesn't like evil, if he didn't create the world with evil, why is it here? And I feel like Jesus answers this directly in this parable. Matthew 13, again, I'm going to read it. The more we, more we understand this text, the better. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. So Jesus came and sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, this enemy came and he sowed weeds among the good seed that Jesus had sowed and then he went away. When the wheat sprouted and it formed heads and the weeds also appeared, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your fields? Where then did the weeds come from? In other words, I thought you, I thought you created a good world, God. Why is there evil here? See, they, they're asking, he's depicting through the, this parable the questions that we oftentimes find ourselves asking. And he says, an enemy did this. 
And then he goes on to later explain the, the world is the field, right? And the enemy did this, and he's Satan, and he planted these weeds. So what is Jesus saying? He's highlighting for us the fact that although his kingdom is here and it is good, and although he has sown good and there is good around us, at the same time there's another kingdom at work also. So our question was, if God's kingdom has come, why does evil exist? And the answer is, next slide, although his kingdom has come, another kingdom is at work also. And you may hear that and be like, thank you, Captain Obvious. Like, duh for the Christian cliche. I could have told you that before you started this message. Like, but, but I don't want us to dismiss too quickly what Jesus was saying. Because although it may be simple, it's very profound. And there's actually more details in it if we look. See, Jesus illustrates for us within a story that only takes a few sentences to tell, a complex issue that we wrestle with our entire life. He explains to us that there's two forces at play the force of him sowing good and the force of the devil sowing bad. The word enemy in the Greek in verse 25 speaks of someone who has irreconcilable hostility proceeding out of a personal hatred bent on inflicting harm, meaning the enemy has one sole purpose, to destroy what God made as good, what God sowed as good. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And again, I know none of this is flashy new ideas. This is basic biblical theology. But I think it's important to know for two reasons. Number one, our nation is incredibly illiterate. And I oftentimes think we make the enemy the people that we're facing versus the enemy that's actually sowing the evil into our world. And everyone has a free choice. We're going to get into that in a second. But like we have to recognize like when you're frustrated with politics, don't be mad at the politician. When you're frustrated with the evil that's surrounding us, don't get mad at the gun laws. There's a lot of things, yes, we can change as a country, but ultimately we have to recognize the sole root of it because Jesus is not interested in the symptoms. He's interested in the root. And the second reason I bring this up is because I believe one of the main reasons Jesus tells this parable is so that he can give insight about and warning to his followers about the opposition at play. He was trying to help his followers understand that, that in being in his kingdom right now, there was opposition he wanted them to know that although there was good to be embraced, there was also another force trying to destroy that good. One commentator wrote this, the purpose of Jesus slipping into this parable, the, hypothet the hypothetical question of the servants to hear, oh my goodness, I'm totally butchering this sentence. Let me back up. The purpose of Jesus slipping into this, par in this parable, the hypothetical question of the servants to their masters was to allow him to set up the opportunity to highlight the scheme of the devil and his sin. And in Jesus showing us this, he gives us details into how the enemy does this. Matthew 13, 30, 13, 25 says this, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And in Jesus saying this, he describes two things about the enemy. Number one, that he came in the night. And remember, parables are not literal examples. They're metaphor to try to represent something. So he's describing Satan, this enemy that comes in the night, and he's showing us not that Satan only works at night, but that Satan's sly. He's sneaky. He's inconspicuous. He makes it not obvious. He's trying to be deceptive. The second thing he says is he sowed weeds. And now on the surface, I know like a lot of us were like, I hate weeds. Like every, every time the winter ends and spring rolls around, I hate when those su suckers start popping out of the ground. Like I hate weeds, okay? Anybody with me? Amen. Hate them. But when Jesus selected to use weeds, a part of his parable, he wasn't like doing it for that reason. I said a few weeks ago when I preached on the parable of the persistent widow, an important thing to know in every parable is that the, the characters and things being illustrated were for a specific reason. And we also need to know that Jesus chose the elements of his parable to describe to his followers something they would have understood, something they were a part of. So when he was talking to this group of people, they were from an agrarian society, meaning they lived on agriculture. 
They lived their life. They would have understood what farming looked like, what it meant to sow, what it meant to keep hold of a crop, what it, like all these different things. So when he's talking about this, this is not foreign to them. So when he told them that, his, that, that, that this enemy came and sowed weeds, and he used the Greek word for he, he did for weeds, his audience would have known exactly what he meant. The Greek word he used for weeds that we assumed he used was what we call darnell. And darnell is known as false wheat. Say false wheat. And I learned a bunch of different things in regards to this wheat and prep for this message. But to sum it up, darnell in its early stages after it is planted looks super similar to wheat. And I found a photo on Google because in Google we trust, right? Uh, and so this is supposedly, I mean, if you believe Google, I am not a farmer, the farthest thing from a farmer, so don't trust me. But basically, like they say, tares, Darnell, same thing. They're very similar in look. So when, when the weeds start popping out of the ground, on initial thought, like you don't recognize there's any difference. It's as they mature that you recognize there's a difference. And so many scholars and commentators have interpreted this part of the parable, but I couldn't help but notice the fact that this weed that poses itself as wheat but is not correlates very closely to how the devil works. See, Jesus had an encounter with a group of Jews in John, and in us, he gives us, in it, he gives us details of who the devil is. John eight forty four. he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, one of great, Satan's greatest methods is by sowing lies, sowing weeds. He sows lookalikes that in the early stages seem better than the good that Jesus sowed. But when they harvest, it is not something you want to be a part of. They lead to a harvest of what you do not want. He's someone who likes to bring confusion to the truth. He may not even tell a lie. He just confuses you on what is true. And we see this recorded in the earliest stages of the Bible, right? In the book of Genesis, we watch for the first time, Satan plants seeds. In Genesis 2, God came to Adam and Eve and said, Genesis 2.16, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, just do not eat from the tree of good and evil. And then it tells us, right, um, that Satan comes and it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And I don't believe that Satan actually like thought that, like he, he was trying to get Eve off her, off her toes or on her toes, on her heels. That's the phrase. There you go. The woman said to the serpent, we must eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be um, like God, knowing good and evil. So what happened to the story? Satan, by sowing weeds, caused Eve to question what God was said, said was good. See, Satan didn't even necessarily tell a lie. He just got Eve to think about what was true, to debate what was true. And this doesn't mean that Eve had the right to make the, the comment, oh, Satan made me do it, although that's what she did. Eve, us, all of creation forever has always had free choice. See, we can take the good seed that God planted and we can for ourselves choose weeds instead. Satan is just the master of disguising weeds as wheat. And so you may ask at some point, well, why did God put the tree of good and evil in the garden in the first place? And this is super important for my next point, but why did he even give the initial choice for humanity to decide between wheat and weeds? He could have just created the world without weeds, right? But upon creation, um, upon creation, he made us with free will and choice. One person put it this way, God put the tree of knowledge and good and evil in the garden of Eden to give Adam and Eve a choice to obey him or disobey him. 
If God had not given Adam and Eve the choice, they would have essentially been robots simply doing what they were programmed to do. God created Adam and Eve to be free beings, able to make decisions, able to choose between good and evil. In order for Adam and Eve to be truly free, they had to have choice. And so in that moment, Eve took on the role of deeming what was right and wrong for herself. And she chose, I'm going to ignore what God said. I'm going to do what I feel like is right. And humanity has never stopped making that mistake. And what I want us to grasp this morning again is that that's why evil's here. Simply, I know there's a lot more complex ideas. Why does wrong happen to you? I'm not going to try to answer that right now. But at the, this, the core purpose, we have to stop like walking through this life. You know, God actually says that it's going to get dark in the last days. I'm not saying that's the last days. I, like, I'm not even trying to claim that because I feel like since I was born, I've just heard it's the last days. It's been 20, 26 years. So I'm not trying to claim that. But like we look at the evil around us and sometimes I think we get frustrated. It's like God, like this was 2,000 years ago. He told us there was two things at play. So why are we surprised? Why are we fighting the wrong things? So that's the first tension I feel like Jesus touches upon. The second one is, will there eventually be a place where evil no longer exists? And the short answer is yes. Upon his return, Jesus will wipe out evil. And now I recognize as a Jesus follower that this question may not actually be that much of a tension point in your life. Because for the believer, this question is less, of a, is less of tension and more of a comfort, right? More of an answer of comfort. And what I mean by that is Christians, we have faith and assurance that because we have given our hearts to Jesus, when the day of his return comes, we are going to a place where there is no evil, where evil no longer exists. See, with entrance into eternity, we'll find ourselves in a place where there is only good, where God is good, where his goodness resides. And that's 100% true, but I think the problem is we don't fully grasp what Jesus means when he said he's going to gather up the weeds and create a place with no evil. We're missing part of the picture. And I feel like he actually pulls us into the story now because I don't think any of you are, are like just out there doing evil consistently, right? So you're like, okay, so far this is not about me. This is where Jesus makes it about us. Matthew 13, 39 says, The harvest at the end of the age, right? This judgment day when he comes back. And the harvesters are the angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus saying? He's illustrating that at the time of his second coming, he's going to do this judgment that we've all feared, right? That like people like Turner Burn, like we've always been fearful of, you know what I'm talking about? He's talking about this judgment where he's going to separate the wheat and weeds. But here's the problem with our understanding what he means by getting rid of the evil. I think we hear that word evil and we think of the big bad stuff, like the big no-nos, like sexual immorality and murder, right? That's the evil Jesus is talking about. And he is going to get rid of that. But I think the issue is, is he's not stopping there. When Jesus said he's going to wipe out evil, he's talking about everything that causes sin. Anything that goes against what he says is not good. So the lust in your heart, the selfish desire that drives you, the reason you lied, gossip, the thing that's like that you keep covering up that no one knows about, like he's talking about all evil. Anything that, 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 that misrepresents or takes us away from good, he's talking about that. In verse 41, you notice, they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. The Greek word Jesus uses for causes sin speaks of something that's a trap, that's a snare, that's a stumbling block. In describing, it's describing the process of someone being trapped and caught up by their own carnal fleshly thinking. It's anything that causes someone to sin. So yes, the stuff all humanity can say is evil, the big stuff is going. But more than that, Jesus is talking about everything. Everything that causes us to choose something other than the good he created. 
And this should humble the righteousness of, of Christianity today. It says, I don't do the big stuff, so I'm clear. Because although you're not a murderer, you definitely have hate-filled thoughts. And although you haven't committed adultery, like you probably have lusted in your heart this week. See, there's no divide for Jesus. And we, we like to classify these sins. Oh, homosexuality is way worse than this other sin. Well, no, actually, you looking, you looking at pornography is just as bad as someone struggling with homosexuality. We can't, we can't layer sin. And this is where the gospel, the good news comes into play in this parable. And that's why I love it. This is where I know it's been heavy so far and half of you are still probably confused. I'm trying my best, but here we go. This is where the good news comes into play. It's not our actions that make us wheat. It's God's gift that makes you wheat. It was the sacrifice of his son to bear your weeds that allowed you to stand as wheat in the last day. You can't earn the status of being wheat. You can only accept the status of being wheat. Our spot in his kingdom is not because we don't have weeds. Our spot in his kingdom is because we have accepted the good seed. And I, the parable doesn't share this, but some are like, when we get to that last day, like we, we will have weeds too. Even if we're wheat, like the weeds are going to be in, like entangled around us. So I don't know about you, but like I'm progressing more and more to be like Jesus, hopefully, but there's still a lot of sin in my life. There's still a lot of weeds. And I want us to grasp this because when God comes back to rid the world of evil, his first and foremost goal is not to wipe out people, but to wipe out the evil, destroying people. And that's huge because we identify evil and we place it on people. And then we don't like people when we shouldn't like the evil that's in the people. He loves humanity. Humanity is his creation. Each one of us, even the person, even one of those terrorists that killed on 9-11 was made in his image. And I, don't, I cannot even imagine trying to have a conversation like that if that was someone that I lost. In, in, that, in that event. But at the end of the day, that person was made in God's image. They had just accepted a lot of weeds. He's not interested in wiping out his creation, but the evil that's destroying it. He doesn't want to just wipe out injustice. He wants to wipe out the root of injustice in every human heart. He doesn't want to just wipe out sexual immorality. He wants to, he wants to wipe out the lust that's inside of every human heart. And hear me, this doesn't mean that he's going to come back and just rid the world of evil and we're all going to be wheat. Like, although some people's theology likes to go there. That's not the case. See, because the reality stands that he gave us free choice right here and right now. So although there's two forces at play, he gave us free choice of whether we're going to choose weeds or wheat. Every human walking face of this planet has a choice to submit to the weeds and evil of their heart or to Jesus. And those who refuse to do so and continue to live the sinful desires of their heart without repentance and relationship with God will be wiped out with all evil. See, if we choose to reject Jesus now, he will reject us then. And that may seem unfair, but I heard someone actually describe this when they were talking about this. If you had an organ inside of you that was killing you and you did not know like, like how soon you were going to be killed and you refused to let the surgeon come in and, and save you, that would be your fault, not the surgeon's. And the same is true for us. We have this thing inside of a sin, the weeds that are destroying God's good creation. And you may, you may like sin at first, but the guilt and shame of it is, is like, it completely destroys life. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like some of you are carrying in guilt and shame today, and it's destroying the good that God put inside of you. He wants to remove those weeds. It comes down to a, a humble, submitted heart. See, and he, he, he loves us enough to allow us to decide 
decide our, our fate rather than forcing us. He loves us enough to go, if we rejected him, he, he will allow us to have our wish in eternity too. He will let us be away from his presence. So that leads to my third point today. What do we do in the meantime, right? So if God's kingdom is here, why does evil exist? Well, it exists because there's two kingdoms at work, okay? At the same time, there's coming a day for each one of us that evil will not exist. But what do we do in the meantime? Because when Jesus told his parables 2,000 years ago, all right, there's been a lot of meantime so far. So what do we do? Matthew 13, 27 tells us this. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this. He replied, the servants asked him, do you want us to go pull them up? He answered, no, because while you're pulling the weeds up, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. What is Jesus saying in this part of the parable? First off, I believe he's talking about us. He's describing us. In, in the New Testament, the Greek word that is used here for servants is actually used multiple times speaking of those who are devoted followers of Jesus. So he's now putting us into a parable in a different role because we're also the wheat, but now we're the servants. So he's made us a dual role in this parable. And in doing so, and Jesus doing this, I feel like we actually get to see a slight amount of Jesus' humor involved in it because Jesus knows the human heart so well. And he constructed this parable in such a way to illustrate for us how our response is to evil most times. The servants come up and ask him, where do the weeds come from? He says, the enemy planted them, and they go, oh, are you serious? Do you want us to do something about it? Kind of like you come up and like, did you hear about so-and-so? Are you going to do something about that? Pastor Kevin, oh my goodness, we're baptizing so-and-so. What? Did you hear about that politician that did that? Can you not see the humor Jesus has in this? I'm like, you nailed it, Jesus. You crushed it. Like, this is perfect. And it's funny because you may not verbally do it out loud, but like you do it yourself. You're like over there, like, I don't know, like the touching the, the wheat that you have in your life. Like, this is glorious. And you're like, they're weeds, Jesus. Do you want me to do something about that? I can weed that out. See, Jesus knows our natural reaction is so often to try and fix the problem ourselves, but his response is no, it's not your job. In the end, I will sort it out. Let them both grow together. Let both good and evil grow together. And again, I didn't find this in the parable, but somewhere I go, if you judge wheat, like weeds too early, will you end up pulling out what would be future wheat? Because we're all on a journey. I don't think anybody's too far away from God's grace. I don't think anybody's too far away from the good seed that God has. So in our, 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 our fast judgment, oh, they deserve this right now. Well, think about what you deserve when you had not found wheat yet. And so his, his, um, his response to them in this has a lot of different interpretations. One, was, um, one of which was people thinking he was attempting to point out that we have bad judgment like I just shared so, so we could judge wrongly. Another interpretation is that Darnell had deeper and stronger roots. So if we tried to pull the, the, the weeds out, you would actually end up hindering the wheat. And again, I think we actually do this as Christians. I don't know if this is what Jesus meant, but like we come in and are like, you need to get rid of this out of your life if you want to follow Jesus. And in doing so, you actually remove the opportunity for them to come to Jesus. The church tries to move too fast. We try to play the role of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying like 25 years down the road, someone is like literally sleeping with every member in your church. Like there's something wrong with that. But I'm like, you can't just like immediately go, you should be changed. There's a season. And that's why Jesus says it's not our responsibility to figure out the length of that season. It's his. And so when he does this, it's interesting to me, and I, this kept kind of puzzling me this week as I was thinking about it. But in this parable, he actually doesn't tell us what we should do. He just tells us what we shouldn't do. 
and we shouldn't do, we shouldn't be judging the weeds. So what should we do? I think by, by just critical reasoning, we can figure out if you're not, if your job as the servant helping the farmer is not to pull the weeds, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be watering the wheat. You're supposed to be hard, like helping produce this wheat. So what is our job in the meantime? Our job is not to judge or remove the weeds. Our job is to water the wheat. And sadly, too many of us have a Messiah complex that it's our job to fix the world. It's my job to fix the problems, but it's not. Your job's to water. And you know how much easier it is to water than to weed? Because you can water both weeds and wheat. You don't have to tell the weed they're even wrong. You just water it because there's some wheat in there. You know how many times in my life there's been more weeds than wheat? And God just continued to be faithful to me. My friends have been faithful to me. My spouse, my, my father has been faithful to me. And in doing so, the wheat is uncovered. The weeds are gone. And so we have to recognize this is powerful church. You know how many people are out there that you're walking into every job, like your job every day, and they are, are covered in weeds, and they don't need you to try to pull the weeds out. They know there's weeds. They need someone to, to, to point out that there's good, that there's a seed there. They need to water that wheat. And what's beautiful about this is God has entrusted us. It's where purpose comes into play. God has entrusted you with the truth of his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, it's good news. You realize for years and years, I mean, we see it in the Israelites, all these people that were completely devastated by their sin. And God came and said, no, here's the good news. Be a part of this kingdom. And there is not a single person that cannot be a part of that kingdom. Everyone can. It's by choice. And your job is to just water that wheat and hope that people make that choice. This is powerful. This, this parable is powerful. So where does this leave us today? I think a couple different things. First of all, I think you need to figure out if you, your weeds are wheat. And I think that's pretty obvious. If you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior so far in your life, like if you've committed that prayer and said, Jesus, like I want to, I want to commit my life to you, then, then you're wheat. So the next step is you need to focus on watering the wheat that's in your life. I think some of us toy too much with weeds and wheat. We know there's weeds in our garden, but it's like, ah, I'll get to them later. No, like we need to recognize that there's forces at play and there needs to be a sincerity and seriousness to go, God, no, I want you to have every part of me, every part of the garden that I dwell in, every part of my life. And third, most importantly, I think we need to stop judging weeds. We need to stop it. I don't know how many times like I hear on the news weeds, like just complete garbage. That's all the news tells me is weeds. All it does is actually breed in you the, the judgment of weeds. That's what they're doing. How many times does the news tell you something good? Like it's very rare. It's wanting you to go, oh, I hate that politician. Are you serious? So we have to go, no, my job is not to weed. My job is to water. My job is to water. So let's close in prayer today. And I, I believe all of us kind of, this Holy Spirit's we're speaking right now, he, you know where you need to respond. And so I'm just going to pray over us. God, I just thank you, God, for the power of your word. God, I thank you for the good news, God, that was sowed in my life. God, so that I can be free and forgiven, God, before you. God, that I don't have to look at the evil in this world and be worried because I know that I serve a God that's got it. 
God, I thank you for that the honor and privilege, first of all, God. And secondly, God, we pray, God, just over each one of our lives, God, all of us have weeds. God, some of them are, are hidden by dirt. We've, we try to cover them up so people don't see them. God, some of them are, are things that are not as big weeds, and so we just let them stay. God, like anger and frustration. God, and today we ask for you to kill those weeds in our lives. God, kill those things, God, that are killing us and those around us. God, kill the anger in my life. God, I struggle with anger, God, and it affects everyone around me. God, kill those weeds. God, I pray for the person here that's struggling with a private addiction or private thing, God, that they're ashamed to tell of. God, there is no shame in your kingdom. No shame. And I just pray right now for the Holy Spirit to give confidence and boldness to that person to be able to tell someone around them that's safe and trustworthy. I'm struggling with this. I want to get rid of this weed. I want the surgeon to come in and do a work in my heart. God, I pray that RLC would be a community, God, that's authentic. God, that people would be open and available. God, that they would be able to share the weeds. God, and finally, God, I pray against the heart of judgment. God, I contain it myself. God, please root it out. God, the world will be a whole lot different if all of us stop judging. Even if love didn't, even if love did not come in the picture, if people just stopped judging, I think it'd be a night and day difference. And so I just pray right now, God, over every person, God, the critical heart that resides in all of us. God, help us to see people as wheat rather than weeds. God, we just thank you for that today. God, we thank you for the power of who you are, God, the power of your word. I pray that it would, it would go down deep in the soil of our lives, God. It would produce a harvest. And we just thank you for it. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen, amen. If you uh, want prayer this morning, our prayer team's coming up. This would be a great opportunity if you're like, man, I've been struggling with these weeds for a hot minute, and I just need, I need help. These are amazing prayer warriors, two of the best prayer warriors in our church, if I can say that. Absolutely phenomenal. They'll pray over you. And I encourage you, this is a community. This is a safe place. And I believe God's been doing work in our heart. Continue to be open to that. Continue to let him move. Sound good? All right, we'll see you in the weeks to come. Thanks for coming today, church. Here at Relevant Life Church, it's our mission to see people connect with God, relate to one another, and reach our world. This single statement drives everything we do as a church. Our hope is that today you were encouraged in this. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.